Once again, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27 this morning, I want to speak to you about the ultimate question that all must answer. The ultimate question that all must answer. I want to read our text for us before we begin with our introduction, just so it's fresh in our mind. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release the crowd, to the, for the crowd, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, he was, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it, yourse- to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The ultimate question we see is found there in verse 22. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That's the ultimate question that one day all of us must answer, either in this life or in the next. You're going to have to answer that question, what then shall I do with this Jesus whom I've heard about? And you might say, well, Why is that the ultimate question? Why does everybody have to ask that question, answer that question? Well, it has to do with a couple things. Basically, it has to do with who Jesus Christ is. And I just want to share with you just briefly as we begin this message a little bit about Jesus Christ. What is is it about Jesus Christ that lays a claim to such a question that has to do with him directly? Why do we have to answer this question? Well, first of all, I want you to see the person of Christ, the person of Christ. Jesus is God, fully. 
He possesses all God's names. Matthew one twenty one says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God with us. In Acts 3.14, the Apostle Peter calls Jesus the Holy One, which is an Old Testament name distinctively given to God. He is one with God the Father. Jesus said this over and over again in John 8, verse 19. It says, to know Christ is to know the Father. John 15, 23 says, to hate Christ is to hate the Father. John 14, 9 says, to see Him is to see the Father. And John 5, 23 says, to honor Him is to honor the Father. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 37, and Matthew 10, 40 It says to receive Christ is to receive the Father. So Jesus Christ is God. He is possessor of all God's names. And he is one with the Father. He is also omnipresent. In Matthew chapter 28, we'll be getting there in a couple weeks, verse 20. Jesus said, lo, I am with you, what? Always. It doesn't matter the time or the season. Christ is with us. He is omnipresent. And that can only be true of the true and only God. Not only is he omnipresent, he's eternal. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. That speaks to his eternal being. He's also the creator of this world we live in. John 1, 3 says, all things were made by him, and without him, nothing has been made. So these are some of the things that we think of when we think of the name of Christ. He's also able to forgive sin, which only God can do. In Mark chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. That's why they got so upset with him, because he was claiming to be God. And he is to be worshipped as God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 says, at the t- name of Jesus, every knee should bow, right? Of things in heaven, things in the earth, things under the earth, every knee should bow. Clearly a sign of worship, worshiping the Christ. So scripture clearly indicates that Jesus is fully God. And since he is God, everyone is obligated to respond to him in some form or fashion. Secondly, not only is Jesus God, but Jesus is the perfect God man. When he came, when he was incarnate, when he came to this earth and took on a human body. Just because Jesus is God, it doesn't mean that he's any less of a man. How do we know that? It says that the scriptures tell us that he was born. He was circumcised. The Bible says that he grew physically. He grew in stature. He grew in wisdom. He had a human name. He had flesh and blood. He was hungry. He wept. He thirsted. He slept, he was weary at times, he suffered, he was tempted, he was wounded, and he died. He was buried. See, all those indications are indicators of humanness. No one has ever existed like Jesus Christ. And he has the right to make tremendous demands on our lives because simply that's who he is. He is God. He is the perfect God-man. But He's also, I want you to hear this this morning, Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus came into the world not only to show us what God is like, God in a bod, but also to bring us to God 
It had a purpose. The prophets outlined the details of his life. And they did so with incredible accuracy. When you talk about the birth of Christ, you look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says that it would occur in Bethlehem. Daniel chapter 9 gives us the approximate time. Isaiah chapter 7 tells us that he would be born of a virgin. Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, says that he would come from a Semitic line. Genesis 22 says that he would come from the line of Abraham. Genesis 29 says that he would come from the tribe of Judah. 2 Samuel 7.13 says that he would come through the seed of David. All those things were prophesied about Christ and he fulfilled every one. Not only were they prophesied about his birth, but they also were accurate about his life. Hosea 11.1 indicates that he would be taken to Egypt. Deuteronomy 18.15 says that he would be a prophet like Moses. Psalm 22, verse 10, indicates that he would trust God from his birth onward. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, says that he would begin his ministry in Galilee. Isaiah 11, 2, says that he would be anointed by God's Spirit. Isaiah 53, 4, says that he would carry our griefs and our sorrows. Zechariah 9, 9, says that he would enter Jerusalem on a colt. Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, indicates that he would perform miracles. All those things were prophesied about the life of Christ. And every one of them happened. Well, not only was details about his birth and his life prophesied in the Old Testament, but also about his death. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 and 3 indicates that kings would plot his death. Psalm 22 says that he would die forsaken by God. Down in verse 6 and 8 of Psalm 22, it says that he would be scorned and mocked. Zechariah eleven twelve says that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's a pretty exact prophecy that exactly was fulfilled. Zechariah twelve ten says that he would be smitten and pierced by his own people. Isaiah 52, 14 says that he would be brutally treated. Isaiah 53, 5 and 10 says that he would die for the world's iniquity. Psalm 22 says that his garments would be divided. Psalm 49, verse 9, says that he would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 34, 20 says that not one of his bones would be broken. Isaiah, chapter 50, verse 6, says that his beard would be plucked out and that he would be spit upon. All those prophecies came true. Not only... His birth, the life, and death, but also his resurrection was prophesied. And Psalm 16.10 says that he would never see corruption. Psalm 22.22 indicates that he would conquer death. And now that he is risen and in glory, even his present work was foretold. And Psalm 110 verse 4 indicates that he would function as a priest. Amos 9.11 says that he would sit on David's throne. That is the person of Christ. That is the person we worship. That is the person we gather here every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. In his name. Because of what he's done for us. And to us and in us. The person of Christ. But I also want you to see the perfection of Christ. I want you to understand that Christ, even though he was fully God and fully man, he, is, he was holy. 
Completely holy. Sang about that this morning. His holiness demonstrates his perfection. Do you understand? Jesus was free from any kind of defilement, any whatsoever. He loved righteousness. He hated sin. He was victorious over temptation. He rebuked sinners. And the Bible says that he will ultimately judge unbelievers. The God we serve, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not only a person, but he's perfect in every way. The other side of that perfection, not just his holiness... His holiness alone would be hard to deal with, but he's also loving. He's loving. I hope you appreciate that. To serve a God who's just just holy would probably be a pretty hard thing to do. It'd probably be a harsh thing to do. Because if that holy God had no love, Can you imagine what that relationship would be like? See, the love that our Savior possesses, it knows no limits. In other words, He loves the Father and He loves the lost. He loves the ungodly sinners. He loves His own, the church. He loves children. It knows no boundaries. Jesus demonstrated His love by becoming, what? Poor. Right? The Scripture tells us. Giving His life, forgiving sin, seeking the lost, healing the sick, supplying the needs of others in times of need, strengthening His people. He showed compassion on those who were lost, those who were hungry, those who were sick and blind and demonized and grieved. He even showed compassion on those who were dead. Jesus was also prayerful. He was meek. He was humble. He was righteous, good, faithful, truthful, just. He denied himself. He was the ultimate model for those who call themselves Christians. In every way, He is that spotless, perfect Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. This is the Jesus we know. It is this Jesus, the perfect person of Christ, the God-man, whom Pilate asks, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Jesus came into the world to redeem the world from sin. He came into the world to bring salvation. He came into the world to remove transgressions, to destroy Satan, and to set up an eternal kingdom of peace and glory for all those who would love and believe in his name. But to do that, to accomplish that incredible task, It was essential for him to come and to die. A death that he did not deserve. A death that was put upon him. 
And we understand the scriptures to teach that when he died, he paid the penalty as our substitute. And when he rose victorious over sin and death, that allowed us that ability to become forgiven and to live forever as he lives forever in a place called heaven. See, I want you to understand this morning the destiny of every human being in this world hinges on what they do with the person, with the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's the ultimate question. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now, when we look at this situation that Pilate finds himself in in our context... Pilate was put in almost an unbearable situation, a dilemma, you might say. He had to make a decision. But you know what? Pilate isn't alone in that decision-making process. Every human being is faced with the same decision Pilate was faced with. What are you going to do with Jesus, the Christ? And you know what? The answer to that question will determine your eternal destiny. Is it going to be in a place of glory, in a place of forgiveness, in a place of peace? A place called heaven? Where you share fellowship with other saints and you're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? A glorified state? Or is it in a place called hell? A very real place, beloved. Scripture says a lot more about hell than it does about heaven. Heaven is a very, or hell is a very real place, and it is a place, the Bible says, of torment, of gnashing of teeth, where the worm dies not. You might think, well, if I go to hell, I'll just be there for a little while, and then I'll be burned up. No. Your body's going to have some kind of a, of a I'd say glorified, but it's going to be some kind of a supernatural body that's not going to, going to die off. The flames aren't going to just devour your flesh and you'll be gone. That's why it says the worm dieth not. Because hell is just as eternal as heaven. Sometimes we forget that. A place called hell, the horrible place that it is, originally created for Satan and the demons, is a very real place. And it's eternal. Just like heaven is eternal. And it's my prayer here this morning that you will answer that question. What do I do with Jesus the Christ? What am I to do with him? I pray that you would answer that question better than Pilate did. Because he made the wrong choice in response to that question. The question was right. He asked the right question. He just went to the wrong source for the answer. And I pray this morning that you understand that you're here under the teaching of God's word. You're in the right place. I pray that you're asking the right question. I pray that you make the right choice. Now, in order to, for us to understand what's going on here in the context, in chapter 27, we touched on this last week, there's almost kind of a parenthesis here about Judas's suicide. And so I want to go back and just reread verses 1 and 2 because 1 and 2 and, and verse 11 and onward just go right together. 
So it says in verse 1, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Remember, this is, this is Friday morning of Passion Week. This week started off on, on Sunday with Jesus at, at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus was there. And, and the people came out to him and he taught them at that place outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is teeming with people because it's a Passover feast. And you remember on Monday, he rode in to Jerusalem and they hailed him as Messiah. And he returned to that house that Monday night and he came back on that Tuesday. And what he did was he cleansed the temple. He went in and he cleansed the temple of all the sales and the shenanigans that were going on, the money-making schemes. He threw them all out. And then he returned on Wednesday to teach in the temple. And then that later that, that day, they went back to the home. And on Thursday, they ended up going over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was Jesus' last time with his disciples. He'd spent much time with them. Taught them much things. They had the Last Supper in that time together. And here they find themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in turmoil because he knows what's coming. He tells his disciples to stay here and takes a couple of them with him. And he goes a little further to pray. And every time he returns, they're sleeping. Since then, Jesus has been arrested. He went through the religious trial, religious segment of his trial. First before Annas, then Caiaphas, and then in the morning once again. Before the religious leaders. And he was abused during that time. And it says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the council took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They had to figure out a way to put this man to death. A way that would seem right, legitimately. All this stuff was all wrong. They shouldn't have been doing it at night. There's supposed to be a waiting period between execution time and not. None of this stuff played out in the, the trial of, of Jesus. And that was the Jewish segment of his trial. The religious section of his trial. And they couldn't just go and kill somebody... Because they weren't allowed to do that. They were under the, the rule of the Roman government. And they held the sword. And so they had to figure out a way that Jesus would be such an affront to the secular Roman ruling authority that they would want him dead. So they started to bring up all these accusations. And we've been over most of that. But they needed to get the Romans involved. Some people say, well, why couldn't they? They did that to Stephen. They took him out and they stoned him. I want you to understand, when they did that, they were acting in an illegal manner. They weren't allowed to just go 
kill somebody. They were under the Roman rule. And not only that, but the reason that the Romans had to get involved, once again, was because it was prophesied that the Son of God would be what? Lifted up, right? To be crucified. If they would have killed him, they would have just taken him out and stoned him. And that would have violated that prophecy. So you see, the sovereign hand of God is behind all this. Don't think for a minute that Jesus is some guy that kind of lost his way and said a couple bad things to people and now he's bearing the brunt of his, his bad decisions. No, this is all predetermined by the sovereign plan of God. And so they needed to get the Romans involved to take care of this execution because they, and they alone, had the right of the sword. And the religious authorities thought, you know, if we can get them involved and they can proclaim this, then any kind of riffraff that's still following Jesus, we don't even have to deal with them. Let the Romans deal with them. So they were really taking the coward's way out, you might say. And says they bound him and led him away, delivered him over to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And this starts the segment of Jesus' of his secular trial before the Roman leaders. And it begins in verse 11. Kind of a little parenthetical segment there with Judas's suicide. But then we get right back into Jesus before the governor in verse 11. The Roman trial had three phases, just like the, the Jewish trial did. Christ appeared before first before Pilate, then he appeared before Herod, and then once again he came back to appear before Pilate again. So this is a total, you might say, of six little mini-trials that Jesus has been going through in less than 24 hours. It's a total miscarriage of justice. And what's interesting to me is that at each phase of these little mini-trials, at each phase, there was no fault found with Christ. Nobody could place anything on him. Because of who he was. Because of him being holy. Because of him being perfect in every way. Neither Caiaphas, nor Annas, nor the Sanhedrin, the false witnesses, all the people that have come up to testify of Christ, Judas and Herod, Pilate, none of them can bring one accusation against him. So the record stands that he was killed because he was hated and rejected. What killed Jesus Christ was the evilness that dwells within man's hearts. That's the, the setting in which we find ourselves in. First of all, I want you to look at the, the confusion here that Pilate has when he begins to question Jesus in verse 11. He says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He wanted to know, are you really a king? Why? Because that's a legitimate charge. If you're setting up a kingdom, and we're the Romans, and we rule this area, well, then you got problems. And that's what the Jews were trying to concoct. They were trying to come up with a way where the Romans could see, this guy's a threat to you guys. Now, Matthew doesn't show us all the questioning that goes on. The Gospel of John does, though. So turn over to Gospel of John, 
in verse 18. The Gospel of John in verse 18. Because we see this confusion kind of play out here. In John's commentary of what happened. John 18, verse 28. It says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's what we just learned, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Imagine it probably four or five o'clock. Remember, the, the cock crow time was two, three, that time, and that all happened. And so it's, it's early in the morning. Jesus had a, had a long Thursday, but he also had a long Thursday night and into the wee hours of Friday. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. You see here the pious religiosity that these people possess. They're here to find fault with a man who has no fault, their Messiah, and they're trying to figure out a way to execute him without any, without any legal finding against him. And you see their, their hypocrisy and their phoniness just kind of leak out here. You know, they're taking them over to Pilate. Oh, the religious leaders go, oh, we can't go in there. We'll defile ourselves. We're holy men of God. You know, that's what legalism's like. It doesn't make sense. You can talk to someone who holds a legalistic mentality... And they'll, you know, chew your ear about something that's purely an opinion. There's nothing in the Scripture based one way or the other on whatever you might be talking about. They'll just think, oh, no, I'm right, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. And, and then you look at their life and you find major violations of principles that are laid down in Scripture. And you bring them up to their attention and their, their attitude. Oh, judge not lest you be judged, brother. They don't want to deal with their own, you know, two-by-four that's hanging out of their eye. And that's exactly what was going on here. Jesus was led to Pilate's judgment hall, but they wouldn't go in because the place of the heathens, the place of the, the secular government, was, was a place of uncleanliness in their mind. They didn't want to, to go there. The Talmud actually states that the dwelling places of the heathen are unclean because of the heathen practicing burying their abortions in their houses. Really odd practice. And so the Jewish mindset would have nothing to do with them. And so remember, it's the Passover season. They have to maintain their holiness here. They have to maintain the religi religiosity and the, and the guise of all their holiness. And so they didn't want to just march right into a Gentile place. And you look at the confusion here. Because the Jews wouldn't go into the judgment hall, that meant Pilate had to come out. In verse 29, tells us there, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? In other words, you're here in a legal court. You've called me. You've got me up this early in the morning. You've brought this man before me. What is the problem? What's the issue? What's the indictment? He needed to know what Jesus was being tried for. I mean, that's the first thing that happens in any legal proceedings, right? Someone gets arrested, and then you go, and you have a kind of a, a pre-trial hearing. 
You're there before the judge and the, 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 the prosecutors present the findings. Well, this guy was driving under the influence of alcohol and killed three people. And so here's why we're here today. They, they present some kind of finding. You can't just arrest somebody and put them before a judge and they say, why is he here? And I don't know. That wouldn't be a good answer. Now, I want you to understand the, the history here of how this Roman government worked. Pilate was a Roman governor. He had been placed in this Palestinian area as the Roman ruler. But he wasn't the only ruler. Herod Antipas ruled in Galilee and in Perea to the north. Herod Philip ruled to the northeast in a much less populated area. Herod Archelaus ruled in Judea and Samaria. And these were all three sons of Herod the Great, who was once king of all of Palestine. And he killed off some of his sons. <laughs> Didn't agree with them. But the remaining ones he gave certain parts of the kingdom to. And so they, they were nothing, really, these, these people we're speaking about here were nothing other than just small-time kings. They weren't the big kahuna. They were just kind of little government officials. And usually in the area in which they ruled, they, they liked to celebrate a lot of pomps and a lot of circumstances because they wanted the people to think that they were really bigger than they were in the Roman government, where they really weren't. Much of these rulers, really, it went right back to Rome. And, and if they said, nope, you're doing a bad job, off with your head, it was off with your head. They had no recourse. Well, the rule of Pilate and this process that began, it re really resides in the, the hands of the Roman governor. And he had been placed there to maintain peace in the Roman section in which they're ruling. He had been governor since A.D. 26. He served about 10 years. And since the Romans, as I said earlier, held the right to execution, it was very important that they approach Pilate and get him on their side. Jesus had to be executed by the Romans. Not only because of the, the way it was, but that's the way it was to be prophesied as well. So he held this court outside there, outside the judgment hall. Jesus was probably still inside there, but the leaders remained outside. And you see the, the confusion here in his questioning. He says, what accusation do you find? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Do you hear the, the pride in their, you know, who do you think you are, Pilate, questioning our logic here? You think we'd bring an innocent man before you? Clearly, he's done some things wrong. And all his pilot wants to know is, okay, I get that. What? <laughs> what charge do you find against this man? Because if there's no charge, Pilate can't do anything. And so it goes on there in, in, in John 18. And it says, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. In other words, if you're not going to bring an indictment, I can't do anything for you. And the Jews said to him, 
is it not, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Do you see how they're so quick to come to Pilate for a legal proceeding? But you know what? They already got their minds made up, right? This guy's going to die. They, they didn't, they weren't here for justice to be carried out. They were here to execute an innocent man. That's how evil their hearts were. Verse 32, this was to fulfill, fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death that he was going to die, that he was going to be lifted up. He was going to be crucified. See, God's hand, a sovereign hand, is behind all of this. And what Pilate's saying is, hey, you know, judging by your own law, I, I, don't, I, I don't see the issue here. But because of the prophecies involved, and because of how these things took place, we see that clearly it was God's hand moving things along. And so Pilate is, is confused. He's confused over the sovereignty of Jesus. Is this guy really a king? Is he a sovereign king? He's also confused by Jesus' lack of communication with him. Verse 33 in, in John 18, it says, So Pilate entered the headquarters again. He goes back in. He calls Jesus and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Do you say this on your own accord? <laughs> or did others say it to you about me? See, Jesus wants to know. Jesus is just following the rule of law. Are you accusing me of this or is somebody else accusing me of this? It'd be like going into a courthouse and saying, the judge saying, well, you know, have you been drinking tonight while you're driving? Well, are you accusing me of that or is someone else telling you this information? Where are you getting your facts? Jesus answered, or verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? <laughs> look, look, don't get me involved in the religiosity of this thing. I could care less is what he's saying. He says, your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. Now, tell me what you've done. Tell me what you've done. Verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. So he doesn't deny being a king. But he says, you know what, I'm no threat to you. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. I wouldn't have just gave up. If I was trying to somehow overcome the Roman government and, and really take over and kick you out, we would have been doing that. But that's not what we've been doing. Because I wouldn't have been delivered over to the Jews if I was interested in that. But he says, my kingdom is not, what? From the world. That principle alone, beloved, if we can hide that in our heart of hearts and understand that God's kingdom is not of this world. You know, I like a news, good news program just like anybody else. And, you know, you get, you know, you, you watch these conventions and you get tied in and you're going, whoa, this is, you know, you, you just get kind of almost addicted to news. You know, and you have just a news cycle this year because the election's coming up. And, wow, you got these two men, President Obama and and. and Romney, and they're going to go head to head. It's kind of exciting. The, you know, it's building up. And it's like, whoa, who's going to win? 
And yeah, I hear a lot of people, man, you know, if, if this guy gets reelected or if this guy doesn't win, oh man, it's all over. It's just, no, it's not. I already know who's going to win. It's the one who God is going to put in place of authority over us. Whoever that may be. That's who's going to win. Does that mean we don't go and vote? No. We go and we vote. We vote our conscience. We, we vote for the best candidate according to the biblical principles that we understand. But don't think that it all hangs on one president of, of one country. As great as this country is, don't get me wrong. But you know what? This isn't, has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Nothing. We need to remember that. And I think that's where some of this confusion came for Pilate. And so he asked them again, Are you a king? If you're talking you have a kingdom, I guess you are. And Jesus says, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And look at Pilate's response. What is truth? What is truth? John says after he said this, he went back out, sighed to the Jews, and told them, I find no guilt in him. You're saying this guy's going to overthrow my government? He looks pathetic. Remember, by this time, he's already been beaten up, slapped around a little bit, been spit upon. He didn't look like a threat to anybody. He wasn't in there saying, hey, I'm going to, you know, he wasn't doing that. He wasn't pointing fingers. He wasn't mouthing off. Just quietly, meekly standing there before the authority. Answering questions in a very humble way and yet truthful. And Pilate's in this quandary. It says in back in Matthew it says but when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders he gave no answer and Pilate can't believe it because Pilate's used to being in a court proceeding where you know the defendant is like no no that's not me I didn't do that I'm not guilty of that I want a defense I want to defend myself this guy's not saying anything Jesus is not uttering a word And it's causing for Pilate to to kind of pause and say, man, what's going on here? Don't you hear how many things they're testifying against you? But he gave no answer, it says. Not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Well, verse 15 tells us that there was a custom that they had in their culture. And that custom would allow for basically the release of a prisoner, anybody they wanted. That person could be released. Now, I want you to understand a little bit here of the situation. Because in the the, the Roman rule here, like I said, these weren't very powerful men. Okay, they, they were just kind of a hireling and they were set to, 
to kind of be a, a governor. And usually when they are, are made a government, they make a governor, they make a big hubbub about it and, and all this stuff, and they show all their power. And what Pilate did when he was first made governor, he rode into Jerusalem with all these soldiers, and all of his soldiers carried these metal eagles. And on the top of each eagle was a molded image of Caesar. Now, if you know anything about Jews, they don't like any graven image. So here comes Pilate with all these soldiers, with all these graven images, marches in, marching into their holy city. And the Jews believed them to be idols. And they didn't tolerate that kind of stuff. And so what they did is, in response to Pilate riding into Jerusalem, they rioted. And they demanded that he remove all these banners and all these graven images. And Pilate refused. And after he accomplished what he wanted in Jerusalem, he returned to Caesarea there, to the headquarters of his operation. And Jews followed him for five days, demanding that he remove all these graven images. But the Jews still persisted. He refused to do it. And finally, Pilate had to call a meeting with those Jews there in Caesarea. And he surrounded them all with soldiers. And he told them if they didn't stop with all their demands, that he'd cut off all their heads. So in other words, I'm tired of this silliness. I am the governor. If I want to have graven images there, I'm going to leave them there. And if you don't be quiet, I'm going to slice your heads off. And basically, what the Jews did is the Jews bent their necks back and said, go ahead. We're not going to put up with your graven images. They called his bluff is what they did. And so there was no way that Pilate could go through this with this ultimatum that he gave him. He couldn't report to Rome that he had massacred many defenseless Jews. That wouldn't go over well. That wouldn't add to the peace of the Roman government. It could have led to a national revolution. But he was there to keep the peace between the Romans and the Jews. That's what his purpose was. And so what he did, he had to remove all these images. And see, now the Jews were one up on Pilate. And later in his reign, he realized that there was a need for a better water supply in Jerusalem. So he decided to build an aqueduct and to bring in more water. And to do so, he ripped off the temple treasury. He took money out of their, their temple to do so. Money that was devoted to God, in their eyes, holy. And what, you guess what happened? The Jews rioted again. And he dealt with them by sending soldiers into this huge crowd of rioting Jews. And at the signal, basically they clubbed and they stabbed many of these Jews to death. Which didn't go over well with Rome. And Pilate resided when he established his residence in Jerusalem. He made shields for his soldiers. And on the shields he once again had engraven the likeness of Tiberius, the, the emperor at the time. And that's a marker of a false god to a Jew. So they demanded that the shields be changed. The Jews did. Pilate refused. And the Jews reported Pilate's actions to Tiberius himself. And what came back from Pilate's supervisor, Tiberius, was to change the shields immediately. What are you doing? You're causing disruption for disruption's sake. I don't need this. 
And I tell you all that to, to help you understand the predicament that Pilate finds himself here with Jesus the Christ. They bring him before him, and he knows why Jesus is there. In the hearts of the Jews, it was just envy. He had no doubt seen the ministry of Christ, the people that he's healed. He'd heard about it. I mean, clearly he's heard about it because to get an audience with Pilate, you had to have some kind of a correspondence with him. He couldn't just show up. So apparently they had already gone to Pilate and said, hey, this guy's causing disruption. Jesus the Christ, you know who he is. And they tried maybe this a couple times. Well, finally he gives them an audience and they don't have a charge to bring up. And so here's Pilate stuck between this innocent man, condemning this innocent man, or dealing with these rioting Jews, these Jewish leaders, who are saying, either you do what we say, or you know what we're going to do. We're going to go right back to Rome. We're going to cause a lot of problem for you. So when Pilate heard that the religious leaders said that Jesus first started his ministry in Galilee, that was his out. He said, hey, wait a minute. If this guy is from Galilee, I don't have any authority over him. i got to send him back to where he came from. So around 5 o'clock in the morning, he sent him over to Herod Antipas, who was the ruler of Galilee. Pilate hoped that maybe he wouldn't come back. <laughs> hey, you deal with them. This is, this is beyond me. I don't want to cause another problem with Rome. I'm going to lose my job. I could lose my head. I don't want these Jews to get upset at me. And so then, you know, the whole story, you, you see his time before Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas knew Jesus had a great ministry in Galilee. I mean, he was there. He literally removed all disease from Galilee when he was ministering there. Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. He was a very immoral and murderous man. And Jesus, for the most part, avoided him. Didn't want to deal with him for obvious reasons. But he thought, you know what? Pilate said, hey, if I can get him out of my hair and get him over there, that's fine. So when Herod heard that he was finally going to have the opportunity to meet this Messiah, to meet Jesus, Luke 23.8 says he was very happy to do so. Hey, I want to talk to this guy. I've heard a lot about this guy. He wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle. He, was, he wanted to see him come in and kind of do a little circus act for him. That was his mentality. And Luke 23, 9 says, Then Herod questioned him in many words, but he answered him nothing. <laughs> nothing, not a word. Jesus owed nothing to Herod because Herod did not have the right to judge a man in Palestine. Pilate alone held that right. Pilate was just trying to get out of his responsibility. And he'd already pronounced his verdict. Remember, Pilate already said, I, I find no fault with him. That's like being in a court hearing when, when, the, when the judge says, dismissed, it's over. Jesus should have been let go at that point. But because of the people and everything, Pilate's going, I don't know what to do here. I'm going to send him over to Herod, let him deal with it. Because Herod already knew. He had heard the preaching of John the Baptist. He had heard everything that there was to hear about Jesus. Jesus. 
Why didn't Jesus tell Herod about his kingdom like he did Pilate? Well, because he was already familiar with it. He already knew what his ministry was. He already knew what he was doing. So 23.10 of Luke says, The chief priests and the scribes stood and accused him, accused Christ. And Herod basically sat there and laughed at the whole thing. He looked at this guy, was beaten up, spit upon all this stuff. So this guy, you're saying this guy's going to be an insurrectionist? This guy's a king? Yeah, right. And Christ stood before Herod with a face that had been beaten black and blue. From blows that were delivered, no doubt, by the temple guard in the hearing before Caiaphas. I mean, he hardly looked like somebody that was going to overthrow the Roman government. In Luke 23, 11, Herod says this, Herod, the, the gospel says this, Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt. <laughs> says they mocked him. And they put a, a gorgeous robe on him. A bright white robe that was commonly worn by Jewish kings. But you know what? In the end, Herod found no fault with him. No accusation there. Couldn't do anything about it. And Pilate said, you have brought this man unto me. And I have examined him before you, and I have found no fault with this man. Nor did Herod. (laughs) And there's nothing worth of death here. Luke 23, verses 14 to 15. So Pilate affirmed that Herod's verdict was the same as his. He said, hey, I sent him over there. He didn't find anything either. What do you want me to do? Because Jesus was innocent. He hadn't done anything. He wasn't some insurrectionist. He was no threat to security. The accusation of the Jews demonstrated that Christ was not a threat. He was the perfect Christ. And just his attitude. You look at the way he was before Pilate, before, before Herod. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been charged of something that you weren't guilty of? Could you hold your peace? Could you take what was ever dished out to you? I would find that rather difficult. And yet, that's exactly what Christ did. So in Matthew, it tells us that another way out, as far as... Pilate was concerned was this custom they had to release one of the criminals during the Passover time. And Pilate thought, look, I'm not going to condemn this man to death. He's an innocent man. I can't do that. So he tried to dish him off on Herod. That didn't work. So now he's right back before him in Matthew And it says in verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And the key there is the crowd. Because remember, this happened so quick. I mean, on Monday, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and the crowd was just worshiping him and oh, Messiah and throwing their palm branches down on their clothes as he marched into Jerusalem. They were ready. But something quickly changed. Something quickly changed in this crowd, and I think it has to do exactly with the religious leaders and their intent upon finding Jesus, even though he was innocent, they wanted him dead. 
So they had to work through the crowd. You could see him out there in the crowd, you know, and, and telling them, oh, this, this man's bad news. And, you know, he's going on and on and on and trying to turn the mind of those followers of Christ against him. And apparently it worked. Because the governor thought, hey, all i got to do is march Jesus out and, and ask them, say, hey, do you, want, do you want a criminal released or should I give you back Jesus? And clearly they're going to say, oh, just give us Jesus. He's not clearly an innocent man. This is all a big facade. They're not actually going to follow through with this. Even if the religious leaders want him dead, surely the crowd that was just praising him days ago, they would riot. They would overturn their own, their own religious leaders and say, no, release Jesus. Really. And so I'd have to release Jesus and everything would go away. That's what he thought. And so he brings out the, the worst of the worst, Barabbas. And he was just not a common criminal, beloved. He was a well-known, just defiant, bad person. We don't know anything about his background, but just the way it refers to him as a notable prisoner. According to John 18.40, he was a robber. Mark 15.7 and Luke 23.19 say that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. And he had threatened Jews as well as Romans. This was a guy who definitely didn't deserve to be released. And he was up for crucifixion. It was scheduled probably during that waiting time, that three-day period where they make you wait before the execution actually takes place. He was found guilty. A lot of people believe that Jesus died on the cross that was meant for Barabbas. Right between those other thieving partners. Maybe they were his partners in crime. We don't know. Just conjecture. But this custom was something that they would do. They would release this criminal. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas? This horrible man? Or Jesus? Who is called the Christ? It's interesting that Pilate adds that phrase, who is called the Christ, twice after the name of Jesus, once in verse 17 and once in verse 22. And I think he does that to emphasize the difference between Barabbas and Christ. This guy's a common criminal. Even if you don't believe he's the Christ, at least people call him the Christ. So Pilate stated that Jesus was called the anointed. It's another way of saying king. But unfortunately, it didn't work out. It's approaching 6 a.m. probably. And when he gave them this choice, look at what their answer is for, it says in verse 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. In other words, there's no fault here. There's no finding. They're just jealous of this poor guy. And you know what? I, I can't go through with this, so I'm going to give him this criminal or Jesus, and surely they'll pick, or they'll surely pick Jesus. You see this, this criminal who's being compared with Christ. And now here you see a little, kind of a, a, almost another little parenthesis, almost like where Judas hangs himself in this, what's going on here in Matthew. 
It says in verse 9, besides, when he was sitting on the judgment seat, the seat of judgment, this is the judgment's taking place. It says his wife sent word to him. Now, I don't know if you're like me, guys. Sometimes, most times, I love to hear from my wife. A little text, a little phone call, whatever. Love it. But there are those occasions when it's like, look, now's not the time. Stop. What are you thinking? I think this was one of those times for Pilate. Like, what do you want? What? Don't you say, I'm going to see the judgment. I'm ready to, I'm dealing with life and death situations here. And what, what do you want? It says his wife was sitting, he was sitting on the judgment seat. His wife sent word to him. She, in other words, she didn't come. Be like being in a big high executive meeting or something. You know, where you, your wife, even your wife doesn't have access to you. But she gets word to you. And here's the word that was sent to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. Interesting that she calls him righteous. It says, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. In other words, Pilate was given every opportunity along the way to make the right choice. To make a choice that would honor the law at least. And even his wife kind of chimed in here. Said, don't have anything to do with this guy. He's a righteous man. We don't know what the context of her dream was. But we do know he didn't listen. Verse 20 says, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Once again, you see here this mob mentality. Nobody's thinking on their own. They're not comparing the facts. They're not looking at the facts of the case. They're just listening to these religious leaders. Incite them. So you see the concern of, of his wife, and then ultimately it's the choice. Which one do you want? Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Okay, fine, I understand. You want Barabbas released? Got it. Loud and clear. But what do you want me to do with this guy? This man who stands before you, what, what do you want me to do with him? I'll deliver Barabbas to you, but tell me what to do with this guy. And it says, they all said... Let him be crucified. And see, he's still appealing to him. He's trying to get some common sense out of him. He's saying, why? What has he done? At least tell me something that he's done. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And he, Pilate saw before his eyes this riot of people starting to get rowdy. And he's thinking, oh man, if Rome hears about this, I'm done. They've had it with me. I'm here to be a peacemaker. I'm not here to cause riots, and yet this is what's happening. What do I do? 
So he attempts to cleanse himself. They shouted, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, in other words, they had the hand up on him. There's no way he's going to get out of this. But rather a riot was beginning. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd. And this is a custom they had. A custom that was very well known. They wanted basically Jesus' blood. And nothing Pilate tried to do would change that. He didn't want to violate justice, but he also didn't want to start a riot. And so here he is before these people about ready to make a decision that's clearly not right. And he has to wash his hands of responsibility of it. Clearly, he knew what he was doing. He clearly knew that it was wrong. And so he washes his hands before the people. As if to say, hey, this isn't my responsibility anymore. I am innocent of this man's blood. If you're going to do this, go ahead. Not my problem anymore. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, look at him. Look at how hard and hateful and evil their hearts are. His blood be on us. And then they throw their children in there for good measure. And on our children. What a horrible horrible decision to make. It says, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. I think that that scourging happened somewhere in the midst here as a way almost of Pilate saying, look, I'll beat him up a little bit. Because the other gospel accounts kind of tell us that he brought Jesus out. And, and here's Barabbas. He's probably looking pretty healthy about this time. He's been in jail for a while. And here's Jesus flogged, skin ripped open, probably his organs showing, beat up. Crown of thorns upon his head. Just, I mean, you know, you stop and you think of the the, the, the mob mentality here. I mean, Pilate almost was trying to do the right thing. He didn't want to make the decision. He was trying to get the people to make that decision. But in the end, they wouldn't have anything to do with it. And it says there clearly that he was delivered over to be crucified. Now, when we understand what the scriptures tell us, concerning the crucifixion of Christ. We're going to be going into that in the coming weeks. But I just want you to know here, beloved, that it was not an easy thing for any human being to go through. It was not a, a time where Jesus kind of just said, okay, let's just get this done with. No, it was, it was horrible. What was done to our Savior on that day, that, that morning... And that afternoon, in the crucifixion, I mean, he was so beat up before his crucifixion, he couldn't even carry his own cross. I mean, you're talking about the Son of God, the man who created everything, and yet he couldn't pick up a piece of wood that he created and carry it to his own crucifixion. That's how physically distraught and traumatized his body was. 
And when you stop and you think of the, the simple fact that Jesus Christ is innocent, he's perfect, he's holy, he didn't deserve any of that. The, the Old Testament says that he was the perfect lamb of God that was offered for sin. And that lamb had to be without blemish, spotless, perfect. And we see that Christ endured these mock trials. He was totally capable of serving as this perfect lamb of God to die for the sins of the world. In the world of religious and irreligious men inspired by Satan, the devil himself, they couldn't even find anything wrong with him. No accusation was brought. And yet they still convicted him to death. I almost look at this as if Jesus wasn't on trial, everybody else was. Jesus wasn't on trial, everybody else was. I want to ask you that question, what do you do with Jesus Christ? What do you do with this man who calls himself the Christ? Because what you do with Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. Stop and think of your options for a second. You can hate him like the religious leaders did. You can reject him like the crowd did. You can mock him like Herod took occasion to do. Or you can even be like Pilate's wife and have nothing to do with him. I don't have anything to do with him. Just be ambivalent about the whole thing. Or you can get rid of him, try to, like Pilate did. See, whatever you choose will choose your choice for eternity. I mean, why not this morning reject all those choices? Why not this morning choose to follow in the steps of Christ, the Savior, the loving man-God, the one who gave his life for us? And as a result, you receive those blessings and that forgiveness that God offers us, not just for today, but for all eternity. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that it speaks directly to our hearts through the power of your spirit. Father, I pray for every soul that's gathered here this morning. I don't know where their hearts are. I don't know if they're followers of you if they put their faith, their trust, their hope in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save them from their sin. Or if they haven't, I don't know that. Only you do. But God, I pray that they would listen to reason. I pray that they would listen to the Spirit of God that's calling them, that's wooing them. Pray that they would listen to the words of Christ that he's there to take their burden from them. For his yoke is easy. His burden is light. You don't need to carry the burden of your sin into all eternity. Jesus is here. He's here today. He died on a cross. And the reason he died on that cross and was treated in the way he was and yet uttered not one protest because he knew that he was securing the forgiveness of your sin and mine for all eternity. He was defeating Satan once and for all, for all eternity. And Father, I pray this morning that if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you, I pray that they would cry out to you this morning, have mercy on my soul. 
Save me from my sin. I want to turn my life over to this man, this God-man, Jesus, who is called Christ. I want to yield my will to his. I want a taste of his forgiveness, of his grace. I want to follow him and live my life for him. Because he clearly did so much for me. If that's your prayer this morning, I want to just encourage you to pray that out to God even now as we sit here in the quietness of this moment. God, save me. Save me from my sin. Help me to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we approach our communion time and sing a couple songs together, I pray that you would examine your own hearts, believers. Our communion time is an open communion. In other words, it's not just for the members and regular attenders here at Grace Bible Church, but if you're visiting here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're more than welcome to participate in our communion table. On the other hand, if you don't know Christ, if you've never put your faith, your trust in Him, then we would ask that you just pass the elements by and and it doesn't really have any meaning to you. These are symbols of what Christ went through, of His blood and of His body. There's no salvation in partaking of communion. This is just symbolic, and it's a remembrance of what Christ did for us. But the Bible is very clear for believers that if there's something in our life that we need to deal with, then we need to confess it now. We need to get it out between you and God, just quietly in this moment, and ask Him to Just fill you once again with his spirit. Thank him for his forgiveness. And don't partake of this table in an unworthy manner. In a way that would bring dishonor to Christ. So Father, we thank you for this time. We ask you to bless our time of communion in Jesus' name. Amen.